humanitarians, for very good reasons, formed a purpose aligned with the humanitarian principles. But it just may be that in today's context, the centre of gravity for where the most important conversations need to begin may be in a different place. Now, we may disagree on this a little bit. Calling the next grand bargain the great leap sideways. This is the podcast from hell. Grand bargain. Decolonising aid. Twenty-six. Humanity. Humanitarian action takes place at the edge of chaos. And to find the right answers, we need smart, honest conversations. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. A recurrent theme on True Humanitarian is how to align humanitarian action to the humanitarian principles, the purpose of humanitarianism. If you are a regular listener, you will know that I tend to be fairly traditional in my position with respect to the principles. I think we rarely fully live up to them, but that they are important because they guide us and show us how to improve. And I have a very deep fear of letting go, for example, of the principle of neutrality, because I think that will dilute the strength of the humanitarian approach. This week's guest, uh, Paul Skinner, brings a fundamental challenge to this position. His point of departure is that we need to revisit the purpose, we need to tell a different story about humanitarian action, and that in a sense, the humanitarian principles are obstacles for that fundamental reset that he believes we need in order for us to be able to evolve and be fit for the future. Paul is the founder of the Agency of the Future, and he helps clients drive purpose-led change to better mobilize stakeholders and to create lasting success. The point of departure for our conversation is Paul's latest book, The Purpose Upgrade, where he explores how revisiting purpose can transform the way we do business. You'll find a link to the book in the show notes. I can warmly recommend it. For now, as always, like us, review us, make some noise on social media, send us an email to let us know what you think, but most importantly, enjoy the conversation. Paul Skinner, welcome to True Humanitarian. Thank you. Um, it's a tremendous pleasure to be on the show, actually. And I wanted to start by paying a bit of tribute to the show because True Humanitarian is not just the name of a podcast with an unusually good theme tune. Um, it's a really important idea. You know, the idea that a humanitarian should put need first and organizational interest second. Um is so important for the world. I mean, ultimately, it's the only way that humanitarian organizations will end up thriving anyway, is if they have the capacity to keep doing that. Um, and it's not just a great idea, but I really think it's an idea that that you live up to. Um, and even more important than, than you living up to it, uh, you enable the people around you to live up to that as well. You know, I know from my own um, collaboration with you, that you've always wanted everyone to say and aim for, you know, what they think is the the, the best possible thing that we can do. Um, and that's a, a really important quality of, of leadership. So uh, I'm really delighted to be here on the show. We, we've known each other for, I think, five, six years We've collaborated on a number of really interesting projects. For example, HNPW, the Humanitarian Networks and Partnership Week, that happened that uh, that takes place every year here in here in Geneva. You've also been really helpful for ACAPS in terms of helping us understand our brand position and our brand agenda. And we've done some work together on the H2H network, sort of exploring what is that idea and how do we position it. And so I've always really treasured your way of thinking about things and, and the way you challenge us as humanitarians to think differently and do better. And I'm, I, I wanted to have you on for a while, and it's just great to have you on now. So the occasion for having you on is that you've written a new book called The Purpose Upgrade. Now, if you were to do the elevator pitch of that book, what is that? <laughs> so you'll have to interrupt me if I assume too many floors in the building for the elevator to go up. Um, but essentially... The idea for the book was somewhat inspired by our work together in disasters and emergencies, in that um, something that you know we've learned or I've learned from you 
is that when a community is hit by a disaster, actually, in the aftermath of that, it can that community can be at its most purposeful. Um, and that was a really intriguing lesson for me, because most of the ways that we think about organizational purpose uh, is rather fixed and linear and doesn't really explain um, that circumstance. Um, I suppose the most uh, repeated narrative, at least in the West, is the redemption narrative. Problem is A, solution is B. If we achieve solution B, then C, we get to live happily ever after. Um, and of course, and of course, happily ever after doesn't really come. Um, and I think we get, you know, we borrow from the redemption narrative in thinking things like, you know, the North Star is our organizational purpose. And maybe that comes from Nations of the Star of, of Bethlehem. Um, but that doesn't really explain, you know, for example, um, President Zelensky's um, memorable line, Ukraine didn't seek greatness but Ukraine has become great. You know, we're often at our most purposeful in response to an unexpected circumstance. You know, we're told that purpose is about authenticity, um, but I don't think that purpose comes from introspection alone. Um, there would be no point in providing an authentic experience of gastronomic delight in an environment of food poverty. We're also told that purpose is about single-mindedness. And of course you need focus um, to achieve uh, progress. Um, but in an enterprise context, you have to integrate and align all of the different aspirations that are in play. Uh, otherwise, you end up shooting yourself in the foot. Now, think of Brewdog, for example, a, a carbon positive beer, where they have an exemplary performance on the environment, but undermined that with their reputation uh, for how they engage with, with their with their colleagues. Um, and I would say that when people talk about organizational purpose, often the flaw in the thinking doesn't come from within their train of thought. It comes from the variables that they're overlooking. You know, today's problems are a bit like um, equations, simultaneous equations, where the important thing is to know how many variables you're solving for. And it's often the variable that is overlooked that comes to, to, to bite us on the butt. And so I really argue in the book, um, you know, to give it its full title, The Purpose Upgrade, Change Your Business to Save the World, Change the World to Save Your Business. Um, I argue that we need to think about purpose uh, as a renewable resource uh, as an adaptive capacity, and that a purpose upgrade can be an always available event for any organization. And I'd be happy to complete the um, description with um, some thinking about how the implications for human psychology, organizations and society. But I, I sense the elevator may be near the top of the building anyway. Yeah, I think we're at the penthouse now. So if I can paraphrase what you say, you're basically saying the world is in big trouble. We're faced with some existential threats. Those threats in them also hold an opportunity actually for for for-profit corporations to reconsider the way they do their business and make uh, even more money by doing that. That's sort of your argument, right? Um, so my hope is that the book is useful um, to people who are running non-profit organizations or government initiatives as well as business, because the, the logic isn't, isn't so dissimilar. But I think that you're absolutely right um, that this is important for businesses. I mean, um, uh, Paul Mazur wrote in, I think, 1927 in the Harvard Business Review that we needed to move from addressing needs to wants. Um, and I think that actually in today's environment, which, which is so crisis prone, we almost need, need to swing back in the other direction. And we need to go from making the attractive necessary to making the necessary attractive. And you kind of talked about profit. Um, and I wasn't sure if there was a, an element of, you know, there could be an element of skepticism there, either that it will unlock greater profit or that actually is, is profit the right motive in a more crisis prone world. No, I was trying to make the I was I was trying to make the point that it seems like a book you wrote for for the commercial sector. Yeah. For helping them rethink 
and adapt a more maybe organic way of working with purpose, a more dynamic way, and to then show them a way of not only of actually branding themselves, not just as uh, being great at, at doing toothbrushes or whatever it is they, they produce, but also helping to solve the world's problem and to sort of marry those two things and, and integrate into their brand a genuine effort towards solving the problems we're facing with, we're faced with. Absolutely, yeah. I would like to also ask you, what are then the implications for do-gooders like us who are all about purpose? Right? If you look at the humanitarian industry, that's what we are. We are purpose-driven. So what is in it for us? Why would we want to read the purpose <laughs> update? Um, so um, I would say I'm best, probably best known in, in the sector that you're describing, particularly the humanitarian sector, for my first, uh, my first book, Collaborative Advantage. Um, and I would say that that has got some real traction um, in, in the sector. Now, in a sense, collaborative advantage is born of the idea that, you know, most of us have problems that we can't best solve on our own. Um, so we need to forge a shared purpose with others to be able to be equal to those problems. Um, and I would say the, the purpose upgrade comes in and says that uh, if our problems are worsening um, uh, and taking on a greater scale, then we may need to um, we may need a more ambitious purpose. Um, and so in the in the sector, a lot of, as you alluded to earlier, um, I've worked with quite a few exciting initiatives on how to create collaborative advantage. And I think that has been quite successful. Um, I think there is space for further progress. Um, and I think that comes from uh, in the humanitarian sector with how humanitarian actors get better not just at creating collaborative advantage with each other, but at reaching out and enabling a greater purpose to be achieved um, with and through more whole of society approaches. And so that does involve uh, all of the other uh, sectors more completely. But, but let's try to get concrete, right? Because we have the humanitarian principles that I know you're a big fan of. And why would we need to upgrade them? That is our purpose. That is um, a, a really interesting um, question. Um, so you're absolutely right. The humanitarian principles are incredibly important. Um, the humanitarian sector, uh, through those principles, plays a, a unique role. Um, it can be a backstop when... Uh, other people are not addressing a problem. It can play a vital role when governments cannot alone um, marshal the resources to protect their people in the most difficult circumstances. Um, but if we look at the, the nature of the problems today, um, you know, the, the climate emergency, according to a study published in The Lancet last summer, is already connected to one in 10 deaths globally. Um, you know, since you're, you know, we're good, good, good friends, um, I, I haven't, I've seen you uh, only a couple of times in person since the, the pandemic. Um, and of course, that was the biggest global health emergency of our lifetimes associated with the biggest interruption to life and, and work as usual on the biggest scale that, that we've known. Um, I was actually, when I first had the idea for the book, um, I was going to call it The End of Business, because picking up from my first book, Collaborative Advantage, I'd argued that, that the crisis landscape is much closer than we realise and can reach each and every one of us. Um, but uh, of course, by the time I was drafting the book, that was really quite apparent because half the world's population were in lockdown. And so I thought the end of business, um, uh, it was a play on words, end as in purpose, or choosing either purpose or or decline. Um, and that felt a little bit too too harsh in the circumstances. So that's how I ended up calling it the purpose upgrade. Um, but I think that for humanitarian organisations, to, to meet the scale of that problem, 
we need a conversation about is the humanitarian sector going to continue to play um, its exceptional role as the backstop and inevitably be a smaller proportion of a bigger problem as the space for protected humanitarian action is in some ways shrinking in the case of conflict um, that doesn't play by the rules, um, but is also challenged just more broadly by the huge scale of today's existential threats. So is the humanitarian sector um, going to be an exceptional backstop doing what it can, where it can? Or can the humanitarian sector actually be a platform for enabling a more systemic approach or improvements to systemic approaches that really reach through whole of society solutions. And I'll give some some practical examples, if you like. Yeah, I'd love that. But first, I'd, I'd like to just go back to the principles. So you're talking about a platform, talking about changing the exceptional role we are playing. But are we still guided by the humanitarian principles in your world? This platform, is that is are those principles still the foundation for that? I think they can be. I think that, um, I mean, may, maybe for, for the uh, your particular uh, audience is going to be very familiar with the principles, but you, you might like to just restate them in case anybody doesn't memorize them. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably going to get in trouble now, but... Um... So we, we talk about, I think there are four principles that, that really uh, are uh, key. It's, it's, uh, it's humanity, it's uh, impartiality, neutrality and independence. Now, I think that um, all of those values are positive, And I would hope that we could expect the whole of society to buy into the principle of humanity. Now, what's interesting about the, the others is that they're somewhat the definition in the negative. A bit like NGO is a non-governmental organisation rather than a thing in its own right. Um, and so if we take the example of Ukraine, for example, um, then, of course, we would want humanity to guide all our response. And ultimately, we love the Russian people as well as the Ukrainian people. So there is a, a shared humanity there. And it's worth pointing out that the Russian people are victims of the invasion uh, as well. Um, but most of us are probably not neutral and impartial. And a lot of the energy um, providing support for Ukraine is, is specifically because we see, first of all, there is, a, a, there is something to put right. There is an injustice um, and it is important um, for Ukraine to uh, survive and uh, overcome this invasion. Um, and also, I think there is some genuine self-interest that we need to live in a world where the Ukraines of the world are protected from invasions of aggression. And so there is an enormous amount of energy, intelligence and cooperation that we need to support. Yeah, and I think the discussion then is, because of course the way we think about it from inside the echo chamber, is that those four principles are the way they are because of the, the nature of the problem we're trying to address. We, we're trying to, to help the people that fall through the cracks, where the, the state and civil society either, either don't have the capacity or don't want to help these people. And in order for us to be able to operate, we need to position ourselves in a way so that we can actually access these people, sometimes against the, the will or intent of, of, uh, of the de facto authorities on the ground. So we operate on the margins. And so, nice to talk about platforms and collaboration and, and all of these things, but, but I think the question is, do we sacrifice that single-mindedness that I think we should have on, on helping the people that, that nobody else seems to want to help, also the bad guys. So, so let me introduce a sort of principle of the third element. Um, so what are some of the limitations of one narrative and how might we change that? So first of all, the idea of humanitarian action um, of course, wasn't present throughout throughout history. You know, there have been prior moments in history where, if a disaster happens in another part of the world, we might have felt bad about it. We might have felt sorry for people. We might have considered it as a tragedy, but it wasn't necessarily self-evident that it was something that we were in some way responsible for addressing. 
And the notion of the humanitarian emergency and the architecture of the humanitarian system that has scaffolded that narrative is a big jump forwards. Now, there may be shadows to any good idea. Um, so one shadow, for example, I think, to the notion of, of um, humanitarian action is that it too readily gives us the idea that the people we're supporting are the passive recipients of our support, that our support is benevolent, um, and that we deliver our uh, greatness to them as the recipients of that change. Um, and I think that we need to um, change some of these variables. So what happens, for example, if the organisations in the humanitarian sector who engage with effective people are not just seeking feedback on the great work that we've done for them, but are actually seeking to understand fundamentally what is somebody who is either affected, escaping from, or potentially affected by a disaster? What do they want? What are they doing? What are the people around them doing? How can they be helped to better escape? How can they be helped not to get involved, um, not, not to become victims of trafficking and smugglers? Um, how can we harness their agency? How can we stop thinking that a refugee is somebody who simply ends up in a country receiving some kind of benefit? How might we invest in them so that they are improving their own lives, building their own future livelihoods and contributing to their new environment? Um, if we take the example of um, ACAPs, for example, um, you know, I see a, a decent amount, albeit I would say an insufficient amount, in the global news and current affairs shows about the situation in Ukraine. I'd like to see more about it. But obviously, um, I see in the mainstream news very little about the 10 or 12 other crises that the crisis insight uh, tool that, that, that you lead um, rates as a similarly severe, you know, that also has the, the highest severity rating. So are global narratives right? Or should global narratives be better influenced by the insight of organisations like ACAP? Should we have a better understanding of the world? How do we achieve solutions that really reach from the person affected, because if they don't buy into it, it doesn't work, to the person funding, you know, the actual taxpayer, without whose support uh, that aid isn't really possible? So I agree with all of the criticisms that, that you raise, and I think that, that is a lot of what we talk about on this show, right? The saviorism, the, the colonialism, the, you know, seeing people as, as passive recipients of aid and, and as victims rather than, than people with, with agency. So I get all of that. But I also hear you saying that you're not trying to, to throw the principles out. You, you think that that is a valid point of departure, but that we need to do maybe something more on top of that. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I, I think that the principles were intrinsically and are intrinsically a, a very important thing. Um, and I think that I've actually learned much of their value through you. Um, you've definitely um, evolved my thinking on the humanitarian principles. But I think that there are variables that just sit outside that narrative. So it's not that those principles are wrong. It's that there are other variables that need to be solved um, that are not necessarily best addressed directly through those principles. So that I fully agree, agree with. So that, that I fully agree with. And I just want to recognize that I'm so happy that we have converted you into a principled humanitarian now, because you, there have been times where you have been quite critical of those principles, but I'm happy that we don't have to have that conversation again. So now let's jump to the other things we need to do, to those, those variables, to those questions that cannot be contained within the humanitarian story or narrative that we have. And, and let's explore what, what is the complementary story we need to tell. Um, by complementary story, you mean what is the what is the alternative additional role that the sector could play? Exactly. Yeah. So I think um, in the case, let's take um, uh, ACAPS as an initial example, then work outwards to some others. So one of the things that that we've done together at ACAPS is seeing ACAPS as the enabler of change. 
And so we frame that in the idea, see the crisis, change the outcome. So it's, it's not that the purpose is restricted to producing analysis and narrative. It's that the purpose is actually enabling other actors to use that analysis to drive change. But in the example I've just given, um, you know, it, it may make perfect sense. It also, in the specifics of ACAPS, you know, the, the primary users of Crisis Insight, the primary uses of the, the tools that you um, bring to the world are going to be humanitarian directors, other humanitarian leaders, people allocating resources in the humanitarian sector. And so that might make sense for that organisation. But I would say that that knowledge needs to reach much further. And I'll give two examples. One example is that in our more crisis-prone world, businesses um, can no longer just have, or are starting to realise that they can no longer just have business continuity strategies. Because if the communities in which they operate fail, then there isn't business continuity available as an option anyway. So we're seeing businesses actually develop humanitarian strategies where they have operations or where they have stakeholders who are important to their business who are threatened by the world's um, worsening crisis landscape. So what analysis do they need? What analysis do I need simply when I turn on the news? You know, why does uh, even a high quality uh, news media such as the BBC, why do news programmes not reflect the global state and the national state of human need? You know, so there are powerful ways in which the kind of approach that you're developing at ACAPS could be incredibly powerful in unlocking a more whole of society approach. And I think we could apply similar analysis to any of the organisations and collaborations that we've been involved in together. So the example you give is very much around how we can position the humanitarian narrative in such a way that we can turn other industries, other sectors of society into, if you want, non-humanitarian force multipliers. Yeah, I'll give one specific example that I'm working on um, right now. Um, so I'm working with a couple of organizations. One organization that is one of the leading uh, organizations globally in disasters and emergencies, and another organization that has its roots in health and safety. Um, and so they preserve, they seek to preserve the health, safety and well-being of workforces. Now, in today's crisis prone world, we sort of all have to ask ourselves, are we psychosocially ready for the jeopardy, the disappointments, the setbacks, the uncertainties, the complexities and the challenges of doing our usual work? Or, or what becomes very unusual work, actually, but doing our jobs in a more crisis-prone world. And so what can we learn from an organisation that has been on the front line of disasters and emergencies for decades, you know, since World War I? Um, and how can we translate that into something that makes our, uh, our, our workers, ourselves, our teams, our organisations more psychodynamically ready for that more crisis-prone world. And that has many you know, benefits. It will make our businesses more resilient. It will make our communities more resilient. It will make ourselves more resilient. And it will help us to preserve national and global conditions that are better adapted to that crisis-prone landscape. So there's just one set of benefits where we can take something from uh, the humanitarian world and deploy it in a non-humanitarian context that has absolutely nothing to do with the humanitarian principles, really. It's not that it's against them, it's just coming from a different place. Um, and I think that there are myriad ways in which we need to do that, um, so that all of our organisations are playing uh, their part in, uh, in, saving, in preserving the conditions around us and improving um, you know, are, are rescuing us from a global uh, landscape of crisis rather than propelling us into it. So you're saying on one side, uh, position the humanitarian narrative so that others can ingest that and start almost like infect them with the virus of the humanitarian narrative so that they start changing their behavior. And then secondly, use the the muscle memory that you develop from from working in 
situations of chaos or the repeated loss of control that I think we as humanitarians experience, that, that gives you some, some, some instincts that are useful in a world that is becoming more uncertain and, and more risky. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I'm, <laughs> when you talk about those difficulties, I know that I've, I've never known whether it was um, w- w- with, with good intentions or an element of naughtiness. You've had the, the idea of putting me on the triplex, um, which um, for, for I think many of your listeners will know better than I do what the triplex is. But it's essentially, I think, a, 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 a course where you are put in conditions such that you are really physically and cognitively challenged uh, to see how you can operate in those conditions. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think I think the great philosopher Mike Tyson put it like this: Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the head. And I, I, I do think that that it's good to think about these things and conceptualize them. But but really, the personal experience of a loss of control, and this is why we we, we do exercises and simulations. It, it's hard to actually understand it before your pulse goes up and your brain stops working and and you experience it yourself. It's, it, it is hard to to understand just how dysfunctional you become and then that you have to you have to plan for that. Now I think to address your, your question more directly though, um, you talked about you know can we extend the humanitarian principles into these other domains and infect them? Um, and I think there's an element of truth to that. Um, a strong element of truth. Um, at the same time, um, I think we need to recognise how how small the sector is in the scale of the problems and the scale of people's responses to the problems. So one of my frustrations with the humanitarian sector is when leaders talk about systems change, when what they actually mean is sector reform. Because the, the crisis system and the crisis response system um, is global. You know, you, there is no, no part of that. There is no part of that that we can overlook. There is no part of that that is somehow separate from our crisis prone landscape and that is not implicated in, uh, in creating its condition and in adapting to its condition. And so in a sense, um, I think we also have to recognise that the sector is already a part of a vastly greater wholeness. Um, And so it's about questioning the role of the sector in the bigger picture, but also questioning what that bigger picture is and and what is needed. Um, And so that's again where I come back to, I think the humanitarian principles are are fantastic. Um, We also have to look at what is the full range of variables that we're we're starting with when we're looking at the, the context of uh, crises and complex emergencies. And I, I do think I agree with you there. Uh, I think, obviously, that we need a new humanitarian approach, a new humanitarian paradigm. And I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I, I know that it's going to be collaborative and complex. And what I haven't figured out yet is what do the humanitarian principles mean in a distributed, complex adaptive system? How do you actually ensure... Or how do you make it more likely that there's a principled outcome that comes out of this system where, where we don't have the sort of almost command control that we, we, we aspire to within the ISC family? In a sense, there's nothing wrong with the humanitarian principles. There is a lot right with the humanitarian principles. But what should be the starting point for a lot of our conversations? And a lot of our conversations just need to start in a different place, not from introspection, uh, but from looking at what does the world need without our humanitarian or organisational hats on? How can that be achieved still without our organisational hats on? And only then, once we have an understanding of need and how that need can be met, should we put our sector hats on, our organisational hats on, and think, okay, in that context, what is the most valuable role that we can play in enabling that need to be met in that way? What do you think is holding us back from achieving that? So uh, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. Um, I would say it is... So I think that we are held back quite often subconsciously. Um, So 
you know, if we think what is purpose, you know, I would say purpose is our most adaptive capacity as a species. Um, so in the in my book, I actually describe us as homo propositus, because you could say that our ability to tell ourselves stories of purpose that help us pursue um, more abstract goals that really transcend our immediate circumstances is the fundamental difference between humans and other species. Um, so um, that's why, for example, uh, we have developed from generation to generation rather than just evolved as other species have. And by the way, I'm not necessarily implying that we're better than other species. Um, and one reason I'm not implying that is because that ability to tell ourselves stories of purpose that has helped us develop in these ways from generation to generation in a way that you don't see in other parts of nature could become maladaptive. You know, our very ability to pursue, you know, purposeful goals and to see a bigger opportunity for ourselves and act and orchestrate our, uh, our collective activities at a huge scale to achieve that could become maladaptive, given the nature of the existential threats that we face on the climate emergency, on biodiversity collapse. You know, the Secretary General has said on, on the climate emergency, we're in a code red situation for humanity and on biodiversity that we've made ourselves a weapon of mass extinction. So it could be that that becomes maladaptive. And so in a sense, I think that this conversation may reflect it in a sense in that, you know, humanitarians, for very good reasons, formed a purpose aligned with the humanitarian principles. But it just may be that in today's context, the centre of gravity for where the most important conversations need to begin may be in a different place. Now, then, the, you know, there's an argument over then do the principles come back in once you know what's needed and how it can be achieved? And that's a, a separate conversation. But I think what we need is to overcome you know, human purpose can be a valuable lens through which we direct our actions. It's a valuable conscious lens. But the way that it works in the human mind is that once you've formed that purpose, you then relegate it to your subconscious so you can get on with fulfilling it. And in that moment, you know, that's fine if circumstances don't change. But if they do change, that very purpose can go from conscious lens to a dangerous unconscious set of blinkers that blinds us to more important realities and may prevent necessary action from taking place. And I think that may be the most fundamental dimension. And then there are organisational traps. You know, there's the uh, um, there's the psychological effect of the sunk costs. You know, we've invested ourselves and our organisations in behaving in a particular way. Um, there's the fragility that comes from the, the plan continuation biases of our leaguers and colleagues. You know, there's the progress traps through which the actions that got us embedded with particular donors, that got us into a particular set of relationships with stakeholders, could also be the very things that created today's success, but create tomorrow's limitations. So I think there are many factors in play that prevent us from thinking about purpose in a sufficiently adaptive way, a sufficiently renewable way, and recognising that a fundamental purpose upgrade may be an always available event. And here I was thinking that I had converted you into a principled humanitarian, and you then turned the principle into the the thing that prevents us from actually solving the real problem. But no, I, I get your point, and I think I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Suspend, get out of that mindset for a while until you really fully understand the problem, and then devise solutions that suits the problem. I, I can see that. I mean, as a hypothetical question, okay, and it is a it is a hypothetical. You know, it, it's not one that can be answered. But just as a thought experiment, you know, does ACAPS achieve more for humanity? by influencing the decisions of humanitarian actors, or would it achieve more for humanity if it could actually influence global narratives so that the state of the world's disasters and emergencies is driving the news agenda in a way that it currently isn't? Now, I put that as a choice, as if you could just choose A and B, and of course that's not possible, but as a thought experiment, I think it's really interesting. It is, it is, and, and I, I think... The answer, just off the top of my head, is one, it's not a zero-sum game, right? I don't think it's an either-or. It's, it's the first thing that comes to mind. And my second sort of 
instinctive reaction is, I see what you're saying, but I am so scared of losing sight of the people affected by this and reducing this to, I guess I don't trust the world to fix the problem or to care enough about people to 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 actually deal with the problem. I, th I think you can reduce the burden through non-humanitarian force multipliers, as I said before, and I think we need to get much better at activating other industries and and creating a, a making the humanitarian narrative travel and infect other parts of society and all of that. But but there's still that principle of humanity, the value of every single person's life, that that you, you it's imperative that we we help that person. And I don't want to sacrifice that drive and that urge to on, on sort of some kind of influence the system and complex and uh, no. Don't forget that. I think that's my my second reaction. But but I think that it's it's precisely because we don't can't forget that that we need to start with an assessment of need rather than a presumption of solution. So to give two responses, when we took the the Syria crisis, of course there was the criticism that a majority of people fleeing Syria for long periods of time bypassed the humanitarian system altogether because it wasn't meeting their needs. Um, and if we fast forward to today, um, what, how does it help people in need when we've allowed a situation where the Home Secretary of the United Kingdom, which has formerly been a, a superpower of aid in, in, in some ways, um, the Home Secretary can say to a national newspaper that her dream is for there to be front pages of the newspapers of um, asylum seekers on planes from the UK to Rwanda um, if they have uh, arrived in a, in a, through a, a route that she doesn't agree with. Um, or if you have the Prime Minister of the UK talking about refugees as if somebody is no longer a refugee if they happen to have passed through uh, another country en route, which is, you know, for me, a refugee is somebody who is fleeing conflict. They're un if they're unable to go back to the country of that conflict for many years, then they need to contribute to and be a part of a society and an economy somewhere. Um, so they're not no longer a refugee just because they happen to have spent a few weeks or months in a fairly difficult conditions uh, exposed to daily violations and, and crime um, in uh, poorly resourced, um, you know, semi-formal camps somewhere. I won't say where because I'll get in trouble. So I think that the starting point is the need. And then, you know, I'm not, a, I'm pro-humanitarian principles. I think intrinsically they're a fantastic thing. I just don't think that our whole, com I don't think that um, the conversation of the sector should begin in an inward-looking place. It should begin in an outward-looking place. And of course, this is you know, facilitated by the work of a great organisation like ACAPS, which is putting needs, um, making an understanding of needs far more accessible to people. Maybe my last question on my mind would be, what, what do you think is the best case scenario for the, maybe not the humanitarian sector, but then the humanitarian course in 25 years from now? What's your vision? Where should we be in 25 years? So I think, I think again, the, the, the starting point has got to be, what's the best vision for the world? So we have a, a, an increasingly crisis-prone environment. I mean, we've been aware of existential threats for some time, but I think it is now, the reality is impinging on people in far more direct ways and far more knock-on ways. You know, we've had that big global emergency uh, in terms of health. We've had the uh, knowing that we can be knocked completely out of life and work as usual with the, the lockdowns all around the world. Um, we've got serious conflict in Europe and have done for some time. Um, we know that um, even that conflict in Europe could be dwarfed by the, the peril of um, the potential conflict if, for example, the US and, and China um, were to get into more serious difficulties 
um, in the year ahead, in in their in the years ahead, um, in their relationship, um, you know, biodiversity collapse, uh, loss of some of nature's most important systems. Now we don't know um, to what degree uh, these challenges will lead to glo greater global cooperation. Um, they're certainly risk multipliers, so they could lead to to greater global conflict. Um, we don't know where things like the cost of uh, living crisis, or which I think could easily be rebranded as the cost of inequality crisis, you know, is that going to lead to breakthrough thinking and greater inclusion in the end? Or is it going to just simply drive retrenchment and a greater extremitization of, of the world with more and more people being, you know, the victims of a, 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 of a dangerous system and fewer and fewer people being the beneficiaries of, of that system. So I think that what we need is a global context where we better adapt at the level of purpose to a radically changing environment. Um, so this means as individuals, we're going to need to be more adaptive in our organizations. We're going to need to be more adaptive. And as civilizations, I mean, we know that whole human civilizations have fallen in the past when they were unable to renew their stories of purpose when faced with new social or environmental stresses. The ancient Sumerians um, uh, civilization collapsed when they were unable to wean themselves off the agriculture that they'd grown to love when it became apparent that it was leading to salt buildup in the soil, rendering it infertile. The Roman Empire collapsed under its own weight when its model of slave-dependent, slave-labor-dependent growth became too unwieldy for them to manage, quite apart from being wrong on every level. Um, and of course, today, we face social and environmental stresses on perhaps a greater scale than we ever uh, have done. So the question is, can we um, upgrade the stories of success that we're working towards? You know, ultimately, even in the case of a disaster scenario, the narratives, um, uh, you know, the, the direct and unavoidable impact of a disaster is less great than the total cumulative impact of the narrative that drives how we um, anticipate, prepare for, um, reduce, uh, avoid, address, uh, and recover from those effects. Um, so in a sense, I think what we need to do is we need to, to, to become, to foster our capability for creating new visions of success um, and then scaffolding those visions so that we make it more possible for people to pursue them. And I happen to believe that, um, particularly when we're all in the same boat, letting go of an outmoded model of success that no longer is adapted to our needs uh, can be a relief rather than a burden. Um, and that embracing a new vision of success can unlock a tremendous amount of energy. So really what the, the, the skill that we need is to narrate our way into better patterns of living and working and to scaffold those patterns as fully as we can so that we are able to achieve um, whole of society solutions to deeply complex problems. I've sometimes heard you describe that as united beyond nations. Is that still, for you, a good brand to, to, to sort of capture what you just described? So the, the, the founding um, charter of the UN, I think, begins with the words, we the peoples. But actually, the reality of the UN is that um, it would have been more appropriate for it to begin, albeit more prosaic, we the governments. Now, you know, the, 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 the whole system that was born in response uh, to World War II was an adaptive response to a major problem. And globally, we responded to World War II in a way that we didn't respond to World War I. And we paid the price for not responding in that way to World War I. So there was a bigger vision of change. Um, 
And I think that we're at a, a an inflection point, which I won't say it's similar because it's more complex, it's more multidimensional. Um, so it may not be an inflection point, it may be a, a series of interlocking inflection points. Um, but I do think that we need to renew our vision of what kind of successes we are striving for in quite fundamental uh, ways. Um, and, and I think they can be compatible with human nature. I'll tell a, a little micro story that, that might give us some inspiration. So um, during uh, the war of, um, well, at the start of the war of liberation against Napoleon, um, the Prussian royal family did something quite genius. They, they asked the aristocrats to send in their gold jewellery uh, to fund an uprising against Napoleon. But the genius bit was they sent back in return replicas of that jewellery with patriotic slogans. Now, all of a sudden, in Prussia, you weren't going to impress anyone wearing that gold jewellery anymore. But actually, your, your iron jewellery might spark an interesting conversation with that girl you wanted to meet. Now, I think that we need to get more Prussian in that sense. You know, there are many ways, you know, as a species, we like to survive together. And so we like to create impressions on each other and we like to share experiences with each other. What we need is to provide people with new ways of doing that, that they can embrace. Um, and I think that, that achieving that can actually be a, a life upgrade, not just a purpose upgrade. Paul, thanks a million for yet another mind-stretching conversation. I never regret spending time with you. It's, it's such a pleasure. I also really enjoyed spending time with your book, The Purpose Upgrade, so I'd like to recommend that really warmly. Thank you for all your work. Thank you for coming on the show. And I look forward to, to, uh, I look forward to seeing your next project. Yeah, well, hopefully um, you'll be involved in it. Don't don't underestimate the degree to which um, my thinking in in the book um, has been triggered, inspired by, and, and drawn upon conversations we've had together, uh, initiatives that we've started together, and trouble that we've got into together. It's about the rights and the freedom to be for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>